Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. In this episode, we are celebrating a very important milestone. It's our 250th episode. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Anna Greta, 250 episodes. Congratulations, Professor Bessel. Well done. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. We've been a long-time listener to the Policy Forum pod over many years um, and only contributing for the last couple of years. And Sharon, I know you've been part of this since it began. It's been a real journey for this podcast. It's been an extraordinary commitment and, and it's been something I've been really proud to be part of. It really is. I I think this is an amazing podcast and we have such an incredible team of people around us. And of course, um, Martin Pierce was the, the person who was behind the beginning of the pod and did so much for for many years um, to make the pod what it is today. But there are lots mm. of people, in, including our amazing producer, um, Angus Blackman, who, who keep this all happening. Yep, absolutely. It's a big team of people behind us and we're extremely grateful as we celebrate this milestone. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced by policyforum.net. We're based at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. If you want to learn more about the graduate degree and executive education programs at the Crawford School, please check out the website crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And Anna Greta, what better way to celebrate 250 episodes than to launch a new miniseries? Yay, what a great idea. What an excellent idea. We love a miniseries. And a theme of the pod over the past year has been the importance of valuing care, so much so that we adopted our own hashtag. And Anna Greta, this is something that is so close to both of our hearts. The idea of care has permeated many of the issues that we've discussed, from ending violence against women to addressing climate emergency. And during the tasting plate of issues in our first episodes for this year, caring has, of course, been a consistent thread. Yet care has many meanings. It is used in many ways, and sometimes the idea of care carries a lot of baggage. 
Someone recently pointed out to me that care has very specific meanings for people with disability who have to navigate care services that are bureaucratic, sometimes financialised and often devoid of human care. Children that I've done research with who've experienced what is called the out-of-home care system often describe it as being characterised as anything but caring. And we can care about things that damage or bring harm to others. Yet used in its positive sense, care is what connects us. It's what gives meaning to our lives. It may be what saves endangered species, as we discussed last week. It may be what saves the planet. And so we think it is time to put the spotlight directly onto care. How can valuing care enhance policy outcomes? How can it change the ways in which policy is made and implemented? How does it help us to think differently about the challenges the world faces and to bring about innovative solutions that put us onto new pathways for a fairer, more inclusive, just and sustainable world? We think the concept of care and related concepts of connection and community offer much. And today, we're very excited to launch a new mini-series that will focus explicitly on what a future might look like if care were to be a central principle and how we might get to that place. So to kick off what I think will be a powerful and thought-provoking series of conversations, today we're going to discuss a very recent report based on conversations with people across Australia in all their diversity about what matters to them. The report, Reclaiming Our Purpose, It's Time to Talk About the Public Good, places care at the centre of how we navigate a world that feels divided, perilous and in crisis. It's a report that doesn't seek to map the future, but to provide a compass to guide us through. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce our special guest for this, our 250th episode? There are so many people we could have had on today's episode to celebrate our birthday, and I'm so glad we've got Dr. Millie Rooney with us. Millie is a familiar guest to our regular listeners. She's the National Coordinator for Australia Remade, the organisation that's behind this report. Australia Remade is an independent, not-for-profit leadership network where Australian civil society leaders can collaborate with one another and engage in long-term proactive agenda setting. Millie has a research background with particular expertise in local community and social norms around neighbourhood sharing and community building. She gained her PhD in urban studies and cultural geography from the University of Tasmania. Millie, it's so great to have you back with us on the pod. Thanks, Anna Greta. It's nice to be here. Millie, we're going to spend a bit of time talking about the fantastic new report that Australia Remade's released. Could you talk to us a little bit about reclaiming the public good? What are public goods? How did the people that you spoke to talk about the public good? Yeah, so around uh, end of 2019, 2020, and then sort of the couple of years since then, we really noticed that with the bushfires on the East Coast and then with COVID, obviously, people were starting to publicly ask a question about like, why do we do what we do? What drives the decision making at a whole lot of different levels? And so we thought like, is this a conversation about the the public good. And for us, public good was what is it that everybody, so the community, all of us decide is important and is it available and accessible where and when it is needed, regardless of whether it makes anyone a profit. So that was that was the definition we started with. Um, and then really just asked people, well, what public good do you want available to you in your communities and who should provide it? And people, people really latched onto the term. I, I mean, 
I thought it's kind of a boring sounding term, you know, it's not like something that'll get you off the couch, but people people really loved it. And I think because it, it made sense, you know, instantly people would talk about, you know, I want access to housing as a public good, healthcare is a public good, um, education is a public good, meaningful work is a public good, access to nature is a public good, and so is access to the internet. And so I think people saw public good as this very, you know, practical, immediate service kind of thing. Um, but then, you know, we heard so many you know, it got much deeper and much more about how does the individual connect with the collective and, and what do they need to, to have available to do that? I love the idea of the public good and, and I'm glad that it's being reclaimed because I think it does say something really powerful about connection and about what really matters. And and Millie, we want to go deeper into exploring what you found through those discussions that you held. But before we do that, can can I be a boring academic and ask you to tell us a little bit about how you went about having those discussions. Now, what, what was your methodology and what principles shaped the way that you talk to people? Well, I'm so glad you asked because it was part of the joy of the project and the frustration and actually helps explain why I think what we've got is really solid. So we started off with a little pilot where we just tested the idea of the public good and we asked key uh, leaders across different sectors, really broad uh, range from people who would identify as socially progressive to people who considered themselves socially conservative and, you know, all the mix of difference in between. And, you know, ask them that question about the public good. What public good do you want available to you in your communities? And just, just to test it. And we had such a positive response from people saying like, you know, we want to talk about this. Thank you for asking us that we thought, yep, we're onto something with this language. It really resonates. So, you know, we didn't have a huge budget to do, you know, thousands of surveys. So I wanted to ask people strategically who were strategically placed within existing networks who had access to both community and to power both of those different types of power and I wanted to ask people who sat in those networks I wanted them to help shape how we how we ran this out so I trained about 30 community facilitators and some were you know just local community leaders some were within existing organizations and from a really diverse range of people so um, First Nations group refugee groups faith groups local communities public servants you know a, f- a full different mix and we helped we, we trained them and then they asked that question to their communities they run ran it ran the first conversation we all got back together as uh, facilitators and kind of together thought, well, what do we hear? What are the common themes? Where do we want this to go? And we co-developed the next conversation that went back out and that happened three times. So it meant that not only was the process about collecting information, it was about co-creating it and also embedding it within their network. So it was useful. And, you know, it was such a joy and such a pain. Like if you're going to listen to community, you go community time and you go community direction and it doesn't always go where you want it to go. It sounds like an amazing process and I think it's really reflected in the, in the report that's come out. Millie, the report's identified three Cs that people considered fundamentally important and it's such a great way to, to frame this. They, the three Cs are connect, care and contribute. Maybe we could start with connecting. What did people say about the importance of connection? I mean, this happened Every conversation. So everyone, you know, immediately lifts off, you know, housing, healthcare, those basic things. And then, you know, 10 minutes into the conversation, the, the, you get this wistful look on people's faces and they're like, but, you know, 
I just like somewhere to go where the coffee is free. You know, I want to be able to uh, belong without having to fit in. You know, I want to be myself. I want to be able to celebrate where we live. I want to, you know, acknowledge our history, the good and the bad. And it, everybody just sort of clicked into this, yeah, quite wistful mode of, of wanting to connect deeply to each other and to place um, and, and really wanting to be supported in that. I think not necessarily feeling that there was the infrastructure to enable to do that, them to do that meaningfully. So one community I spoke with on the outskirts of Melbourne, you know, they said, oh, it would just be so good if our area could be sponsored by someone to you know, you know how in the in the region sometimes they have big mining companies that sponsor the, you know, the town and they open the swimming pool. Wouldn't it be cool if we had that? And I don't think they were necessarily thinking it needed to be a corporation. And I, you know, there's some interesting things to unpack there. But what was clear was this sense of wanting to be held and brought together as a community and as individuals to then be able to connect in. Millie, it's so interesting to hear you talking about that. You know, I, I'm reflecting on some research that. We did a few years ago now, um, pre-pandemic, with children um, of primary school age, and they talked about very similar things to the things that you're talking about. They talked about the importance of community get-togethers, of having places that were inclusive and where they felt welcome. They talked about having friendly neighbours who would just wave and say hello and make them feel as though they were part of the place. And I think it's so interesting the way that desire to connect um, goes across all age groups, but you know, people from all walks of life. I think it's just so important and so powerful, and something that we're maybe in danger of losing um, in some of our communities. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the thing that struck me just linking that with the young children is that so we talked to quite different ages in this work, and the care that the different generations showed for each other was quite strong. And so one of the, she probably would have been about 19. And she said, you know, my mum works in a pub in a regional area and there's a guy who comes in every week and he plays the pokies and he just comes in because he wants to connect. I want to build somewhere where he can come and connect without having to spend money and and vice versa. You know, the older group was saying we want places for our, our young people to come together. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of us want that. Yeah, I think the power in intergenerational relations is something that can really be harnessed for good. But Millie, you, you had some other C's as well in, in coming out of the work that you did. And we're, we're going to save care until last, but I wanted to ask you about contribute. What did you hear from people about their desire to contribute? Yeah, again, you know, so strong from everyone we spoke to. And so this came in the context, a lot of this came in the context of when I said, so who's responsible for the public good? You know, we heard the individual, we heard government, we heard business and we heard local community. And really strongly was this sense that government should be at least partially responsible, but people aren't convinced they're currently up to the task. And part of that was there are not clear pathways for people to contribute at a national level. And, you know, people were, were desperate to to both shape you know, the neighbourhood, the the local community, but also who we are as a country and that, sure, you can vote every three years, you can go online and, you know, fill out a form, you know, to whatever it is that you want, people want feedback on, but there isn't really a way where people feel that they're heard. You know, it goes into this sort of black box of, 
bureaucracy often. And so I think, you know, there's real lessons there for anyone who's trying to make change or trying to advocate for anything in particular that there is there is a public thirsty to participate, like thirsty to contribute. So what's the infrastructure that that enables that? And, you know, we've got we pay taxes, that's a contribution, but I don't know, I don't see where my tax, like, that's a bit invisible, really. The money disappears, but its its activity doesn't. So, I, I think that's partly why we're seeing this increase in, you know, the rise of the independence as people can see, oh, my time and energy links directly to a political outcome. But yeah, really, really strong desire for people to contribute, but a lack of, of infrastructure to enable that. Mm. It's really interesting to see the way in which we're we're developing the informal networks around that help to facilitate contribution because it is it's it's key to to the things that we really value. The third C, Millie, is caring, and of course Sharon and I have been talking about hashtag value caring for a while now. It's something that we're we're passionate about, and we're dedicating this series of podcasts in the weeks ahead to talking about care. So care is something that all of us want and we need often to be cared for at different times in our lives. You've already mentioned that people talk about care in different ways. Could you tell us a little bit more about your findings on care from the report? Yeah, so, you know, the third C of care, and I think it's important, it's not just that people wanted to be cared for, they want to do the caring as well, which I think often is forgotten. You know, caring is often seen as this really passive thing to give and receive and the way that care needs to come out in a whole different range of things. So, there's a really obvious, I mean, we've been thinking about the three C's in terms of like the physical infrastructure, like whether it's the roads or the hospitals or the, you know, ballot box, but also the enabling infrastructure that frees up capacity and relation time for relationships to have a quality of connection and contribution and care. And so, people, people want to care for each other and they want to care for place and they want place to care for them. Um, and there's a few different ways that that came out. So, uh, one of my favourite examples was actually about how we need to change uh, policies and structures to enable us to care. So, we talked to a group who of um, tenants, so people in rental houses, and they wanted to care that, you know, they're insecure accommodation. They didn't feel like they could do anything to the house. They, they couldn't make changes to it. They, it was often uncared for by the landlord. Uh, and they would say things like, you know, if we had different rules, I could, I could love this place. You know, I'd, I'd fix the doors and I'd polish the antique floors. And they, they weren't even talking about owning. They were talking about being given the security to care for where they lived. Um, and I think that's a particularly powerful example because we don't think about giving people the capacity to care for physical things as part of how we care for ourselves individually and as a society. So, I really loved that example. But then there was also all the other stuff around, um, you know, caring for people who are unwell or family and and the need, again, for that infrastructure to do so, so quality hospitals, childcare, whatever, and the time, the time to, to care and be cared for and the time to do it in a way that is appropriate to whoever's receiving the care. So, uh, another example, an Aboriginal woman was talking about for her and her community, access to country is an essential part of mental health care. So, what, we need buses to get people physically there. You know, we need that infrastructure and we need it recognised as as a form of, of care. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many, so many ways care came out. 
Yeah, you talk about the the use of infrastructure in relationship to care, and and you make a compelling argument that we have to widen the the, the use of the word infrastructure and our understanding of the word infrastructure. And I think you've just given us an, an amazing example when we think about time. I often say to patients, "I wish I could give you time, time to care for yourself, and time to care for others, and time to to care for the world around you." But what do you mean when you're talking about this need to broaden how we talk about infrastructure and define it? I think one of the things that with care is a good example and the same with contribution. So people want to contribute, whether that's through caring for a parent or a, a, a partner. Um, people also want to contribute, whether that's going to uh, the local council meeting. But people find that really hard for various reasons. So there's no time. Who's got time to go to a council meeting if you've got if you're working three jobs or looking after kids or you know whatever it is. So how do we set up in place infrastructure and structures to free up that time or to value the fact that for a thriving society, we need people to not be working three jobs and we need to be or and or we also need to have, say, council meetings where there's childcare available or, you know, so how do we how do we recognize that space is important for participation and contribution? And I think the same with care, you know, I always think of the examples of people uh, in elder care who, you know, the the nurse has three minutes to shower, toilet and dress, you know, someone. And like, I can't do that for myself in three minutes, you know, let alone for someone else. And so, again, how about good staffing ratios? How about the recognition that care is not just physically being dressed, it's being treated as a human and that we can do that. Like in the same way we can build a bridge, we can put more staff on a ward. Like it, it's not magic. We just have to value it. I think that's so fundamentally important, Millie. And I often think about this in the context of, of the school classroom. And I know in the research that I do with children, they really want to talk, they want to be heard, they want to share ideas. And the best teacher in the world is unable to do that if she or he has got 25 or 30 children in the class. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that issue of time thought about in, in different ways is so critically important. But I wanted to ask you whether during these conversations or, or whether you have a sense of how COVID changed all of this. You know, we, we know that the lockdowns, for example, did strange things to people's time. It put much more pressure on relationships in some contexts, but it also created the time perhaps to care or connect in new and different ways. Did, did you hear anything about what we might have learned from COVID and from the lockdowns? Yeah. So we, the pilot part of this project was in that really big lockdown that Victorians had. Um, so that definitely was on people's minds. They were all locked down when I talked to them. And, you know, it was a real mix. So some people were saying, oh, I just have more time with my family. I'm not commuting. I'm, ch I'm actually going to make life changes because I've realised what happens when we have time as a, a family. I think that's shifted. I think actually people have probably, that was a moment and I, I think we maybe have not lost it, but but shifted. But what I do think it did, it has provoked people into thinking about, well, why am I doing what I'm doing, you know, if this is my life, if this is life, like this is a moment of disruption. One, 
where is it disrupting me too? Um, and to, again, that question that we were asking, like, why do we do what we do as a country, as individuals? You know, those of us who have been lucky enough not to have been right on the front lines with absolutely no time and space to think about it. But I think there's something amazing in that that questioning and even the fact, like you say, that time shifted. We, we experienced it differently meant there was space for those questions and we suddenly saw you know around care what it means to not have access to the ones you love when they need you to care for them and what is whose hands are you putting their care in and what do you hope for that care if you can't be there I think that was just much more visible for people I think it's going to be so important going forward that we don't just think about bouncing back to where we were but we think really deeply um, about what we learned about care connection and our place in the world, you know, as, as part of that COVID experience. Millie, there's much more for us to talk about, but we will take a short break now and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Millie Rooney from Australia Remade, and we're talking about caring and her new report, Reclaiming Our Purpose. It's time to talk about the public good. Millie, before the break, we were talking about what you found that people want and the importance of connecting, caring and contributing. Let's talk a little about what this means in practice. You mentioned that people saw that the government has a, a critical role to play in providing direction. What changes do we need to see in the way our governments operate? And I'm, I'm thinking when I ask this question, not so much about specific governments, but government generally, in terms of how we need to, to perhaps change business as usual. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a big question, really, and, and the kind of million dollar question that so many people in these conversations were asking. And I think Part of it is recognising that for the public good to flourish, like we need good government, you know. There are things that government is not doing well at the moment, but as a structure, I think it's really important. And so remembering that government itself is set up to serve the public, you know. We have the public service, what people want from the government. I think they do want the government to facilitate and provide the infrastructure for connection, whether that's like roads and good footpaths or good internet or places for people to gather and to to kind of celebrate together and be connected in different ways care again it's the same kind of thing the infrastructure of hospitals schools workplaces all of those things 
and the valuing of the relationships that enable that. And the same with contribution. You know, people are wanting government to come to them and, and listen to what they have to say. And I, I had this lovely moment with um these young women who, who said to me, oh, Millie, wouldn't it be so great if we had this like independent body like the ABS that the government and then you had these ministers and they listened to the ABS and then they went around and talked to people like you're talking to us and then they made their decisions. And I'm thinking, yes, uh, that's what I think democracy is supposed to be. But like you haven't experienced that as a young person of 20. You've never felt that that is what government does. So I think there's there's a real desire for government to to be good and to look after the public good. And again, that quality, again, you know, people talking about things like safety nets. So we're seeing with the flooding um, in Lismore, with the fires, with other places, you know, people want government to step in and support in that time of crisis. And, you know, one of the examples we use is a GoFundMe is not a social safety net. It's gorgeous that community is looking after each other. But how much better if it was just there and ready to go if government could step in in those times? So I think there's there's one about seeing government as a safety net, two about seeing government as actually leading on this stuff. Like government has this infrast- like infrastructure in all the senses of the word across the country. They can look at public health from a really high level. And then people are saying, well, can you engage with us locally in a way that's meaningful for us locally? And, you know, we have this brilliant system ready to use. It's just been co-opted by money and the fossil fuel industry, really. So uh, I think you've, you've just touched on, on a practical example, but, but can we maybe expand that a little bit further? Thinking about the relationship, if government was, was responding to the public good, if that was the primary driver of our policy approach, if we think about the recent floods and particularly uh, even if we go back further and go to, back to the bushfires that, that extended down the east coast of Australia, there was quite a lot of criticism, which I, I think was reasonable, of the federal government's inertia and policy failure at the time. And we'll see, of course, more climate and weather events. We're perhaps seeing some this week. So if we think about this through the prism of public goods and the the three Cs, how can we see government do things differently at times of crisis? How would you see it change our approach, particularly to national disasters and to our climate preparation? Well, firstly, if we were going to apply the three C's, we'd have action on climate change. So, you know, pre the disasters actually happening, I think there's a huge amount of, you know, if we did care, contribute and connect, we would be acting on climate change and that would be shaping so many policies. I think in the context of the the floods and those kind of disasters, again, like I said before, you know, a GoFundMe is is not a social safety net. So we need some kind of universal approach to looking after people in that moment of crisis and beyond, you know, like we this, this is not a short-term crisis for people in Lismore or all those areas. Having the government that considered, you know, and we've we've also seen with the floods, you know, some some areas are getting disaster payments and some areas are not. And I think the aside from the way that that makes people feel, the bureaucracy involved in this is extraordinary. Like we just need to be getting what people need on the ground. So I think a key thing out of this report is everyone means everyone. You know, everyone is cared for, everyone is connected and everyone can contribute. So some kind of universal safety net for these disasters. There's things there as well for how anything gets rolled out. Does it enable people to care? Does it 
connect people or does it separate us? I think that's particularly important. We're already seeing this fracturing in a lot of ways of opinions around COVID and masks. And so what are we doing that that connects us in these times? And how are we giving people opportunities to contribute in a way that has meaning? You know, the thing you want when you're in a crisis is to at least feel some kind of control. So I think there's those kind of things. But I mean, I see this work as, yes, you can put it on a lens for a kind of immediate response, but how are we building the space for this kind of relational infrastructure in now before the disasters? Instead of saying, well, we can't do that because of GDP, how are we saying we can do that because it helps us to connect, to care and contribute? Um, and that we've seen that through COVID. You know, the economy doesn't have to drive everything. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot to be learned from that, that we did learn the value of caring through the coronavirus. We, we saw it both in the time that we took to take care of each other during lockdown. We saw it in, in the advantages of giving people adequate social security and support through a period of extraordinary uncertainty and stress. And I think you can you can flip the narrative in terms of both responding to climate change and its mitigation, which is that if you if you are directed around uh, caring as a primary principle, we would be better prepared. We would be we would be resourcing communities that are in a position of increased vulnerability, because it matters, and that's what government's about. And I think that's a way for, you know, people, government and others, you know, there's a funny line to walk between how much do we shout, you know, disaster coming, disaster coming. And, you know, people panic and no one wants to know there's a disaster coming because I think we're all scared we won't be cared for. And no one wants to, you know, spend all their money on a GoFundMe for someone else because they're worried that they won't be cared for. And so I think there's this, we've got to find a way to shout out. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, how do we shout out, you know, disaster, emergency, Mm. this is really scary. And we will care for you as this happens and you will mm. be able to care. Like how much of a difference that yep. would make. One of the women in the um, in the research said, I think a public good is the mental health that we would all have if we thought government and decision makers were doing everything they could to address the crises. And mm. I was like, yeah, imagine, imagine how much calmer I would feel, not even knowing that terrible things will happen if I thought, yep, but we're doing everything. You know, it's not because of money and power for individuals. It's because we're actually are all in this together. I think I'd feel so much better. <laughs> you know, Millian, I think there's there's so much around this that relates to listening. And we've had this kind of conversation on on other pods as well. And I'm thinking when I'm hearing you talking, I'm thinking of a debate that was was often had in the global humanitarian and development context. And there was one school of thought, when we have a crisis, we don't have time to listen, we just have to do. And another more powerful school of thought saying, when we have a crisis, it's the time that we must listen, because if we just act, we're likely to get it wrong. And I'm thinking about, you know, those young women that you talked about who'd never had anyone come and listen to them and ask them what was important. And then, you know, you see those images in in Lismore, or during the, the, the fires in Cabago. And what people really needed was someone to come and to listen to what they were experiencing and to say, we will care, we will act, and we're going to do that after we've listened and we've heard you and we know what's needed. And to me, that's leadership rather than looking for the photo opportunity, which is 
what we have seen from our leaders of late. Absolutely. And I think that's part of why we want to reframe some of this as infrastructure. You know, it's it's not just doing nothing. It's actively building, you know, in community infrastructure is the infrastructure we need for the world that we need to create. And, you know, you can talk about those big crises, but I think there are so many Australians having daily crises that need care from the government and that sense of being witnessed and validated. And, you know, one woman, she'd been on some kind of Centrelink payment years and years ago. And she said, you know, back then I'd go in and they would say, oh, well, looks like you're eligible for X, Y, Z. Okay, off you go. And she now has a daughter with a disability and is trying to get that daughter onto payments. And she said, you know, you walk in and they're like, I fill out this form, Ah, not eligible. So you have to go back, fill another form, Ah, not eligible. And the kind of mental pain that that is causing her, you know, is really significant. So I, I think that that listening and witnessing, like, I am a human in need of help. We are a world in need of help. Like, if if bad things are happen, let's go down. You know, we were talking about, let's go down in the beanbag. I think Anna, Greta and I were talking about this <laughs> before, you know. Things are hard. We all kind of need a bit of beanbag time at the moment. And that's not soft. That's not weak. That's That's why we're here. Like that's what moves us, all of us, is that sense of being cared for. So I think we just underestimate the power of that um, as a strategy and as a tool and as an essential service. And I think somewhere along the way we've started to lose a deep commitment to care that I think this country once prided itself on us. We talked about egalitarianism and mateship and, and support. And Millie, I, I wanted to ask you or to pick up on something that you raised before the break when you gave the example of the person who's who's providing care for the aged and has three minutes to to wash, to to clothe, to to help someone to to feed themselves. And one of the things that we've discussed several times on on the pod is the financialization and the profitization of care. I, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on how we need to think differently about the way care is provided by society to those who need it. And of course, any of us could need care at at any time. What are the first steps that need to be taken to move away from the idea that care can somehow be made profitable in a financial sense towards care being valued? I mean, I have lots of thoughts on this just from my own personal experience. I mean, it comes back again to recognising that flexibility of time, that the kind of frayed edges of interaction are infrastructure. And so I think a lot about, I think I've said this on the pod before, so my husband has a chronic illness. Um, We support a lot of people in our community who have varying degrees of illness or, or just complex things going on in their lives. And you can't pay me to do the care work that I do because that would make that care work become very transactional. You know, you couldn't have someone, I can't have someone turn up on my doorstep and be like, oh, Millie, I've just broken up with my partner or oh, this thing's gone wrong. And I'm not going to turn around and be like, oh, bing, 50 bucks. Thank you. Like part of how care works is it's a give and take of obligation. It's it's not transactional. It's, it's very different to going and buying a toothbrush, which, you know, you pay the money and it's over. And so I think part of it is about reclaiming well, actually, the messiness of human life 
is essential for us to do all the other things. And, you know, I think that's thinking about a universal basic income or, you know, paid carers leave for everyone that doesn't have to be attached to children. You know, I don't have children, but I do a lot of care work for the community. So how do I how do I get that recognised? And I think there's a tension between paying for things because that's how we validate work. You know, you, you look at the things that say about, you know, I think the gendered stuff around childcare and, you know, if you paid for the women's work in the home, the bill would be enormous. And that both is a good indicator to show us about how we don't value care, but it also kind of cheapens what it is because care isn't transactional. So I think having structures that free up people's time where we trust that that time will be used for care. And that might not be childcare or, you know, looking after the, the elderly. It might be, again, care might be participating in democracy. It might be planting trees. It might be doing art in your street. I think there's a risk that we expand the definition of care so much that it becomes everything. But also maybe that's what we need to do to start recognizing that it's it's not something you can chop up and you know I don't do care between 3 p.m and 4 p.m actually I do it 24 hours a day a personal experiment that I've done is often in meetings where people will introduce themselves with you know I'm professor of this or I'm CEO of this and I will often start with oh, I'm Millie um, I'm a carer and it it changes the dynamic you can't pay me but you can recognize that that is that is a valid use of my time and it takes time so I think the very first thing is care takes time how about we actually make that time so that might take us into an interesting question about the role of business and the private sector in creating connections and caring into the future and, and I know that's been part of the exploration in your work is the relationship or the the role that, that the corporate sector might play um, improving the pu- public good and, and expanding the public good but what are your thoughts on the role of business? Oh, it's tricky. I feel really (laughs) conflicted about this because I think we are not very good at distinguishing business from like mega corporation, you know, extractive business from family business from, you know, I I think we do, we need to get a handle on that language because I I think we're, we're useless without that language. I really worry about private sector stepping into this space too much. I worry that it puts control, you know, it's very undemocratic. Um, It puts control of who we are as a community and how we are cared for in the hands of people who happen to have money and control. I mean, you could say that sometimes perhaps about our democracy, but, you know, it's not set up to be like that. We need to be careful about how much space we let business take up when it comes to the public good. I think there is a role for it, but I think we need to be conscious of when we let that business have that space and when we don't. I mean, we've seen obviously the private sector around healthcare, um, childcare, you know, I don't think there should be profit in care. I just think that's something we should all have access to regardless of, of profit and profit does weird things. But that said, you know, I spoke to someone, the CEO of a, a very big company is a B Corp and he, you know, the deep care that he showed for the communities that he worked with, he'd had to, you know, a lot of staff were laid off with COVID and he was deeply distressed about that. And, you know, he said, we also need government to limit our space. So I think it's something we actually need to delve into and get a language for. Millie, there are so many conversations coming out of those points that you've just raised. And I think these are issues that we could continue to talk to you about for much, much longer. 
And they are precisely the issues that we want to continue exploring over this mini-series where we really delve into to care and what we mean by care and how we can do it better. But we are going to need to, to draw to a close for now. And we always like to end by asking for a piece of policy advice. We will have an election in Australia over the next couple of months. And I'd, I'd like to hear from you what your key piece of advice would be for the government and for members of parliament across all parties as we think about the place of care in the future of Australia, that one key piece of advice you'd give them. The one piece of advice I think is everyone means everyone. So everyone, whatever we do around care, everyone gets that. And I don't care if you've got $3 billion in your bank account or $3, I think everyone should have access to care. You know, let's tax the $3 billion person, but I just think everyone means everyone when it comes to care. I think that's such a powerful message to end on. Millie Rooney, thank you so much for joining us today. As as always, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Sharon, what a powerful way to finish today's conversation, remembering that caring is for everyone, Uh, every person in our society, every place that we live in Australia uh, deserves attention and deserves care. What did you think of the conversation we've just had with Millie? I thought that was a terrific conversation. It raised so many issues that we we want to delve into in greater depth. And it also started to give us that new pathway mm. um, that we, we really wanted to be able to explore in this mini-series. So I, I really enjoyed the conversation. And I'm I'm going to be reflecting again on the connection between listening and care, and that if we are really serious about valuing care, listening may be the starting point. Mm. Listening, caring, and time. Time we talked about at the end of our work series uh, last year. Uh, It's an essential part of how we live our lives and it's one of the things that also requires some attention. In order to value caring, we do need time. Yes, time is just so essential and as you say, it's come up again and again and I think we're going to be joining some dots through this mini-series. I kept reflecting back to the conversation we had last year, that amazing conversation with Marilyn Waring um, when Millie said we need to think beyond GDP and we need to think about the things that are valuable beyond GDP. You know, I couldn't help but uh, hear Marilyn's voice talking about the need for, for different ways forward and, of course, she talks about care and time in such powerful ways. We, we define what, what we value. We can change that. It's so certainly one of the most extraordinarily important things for us to, to really give some reflection to. Yes, absolutely. So I'm really excited to be at this point and to be spending the, the next few weeks thinking deeply about these issues and talking to some people who have thought a great deal and, and have some really powerful ideas for us to take forward. And I'm thinking, Anna Greta, we've discussed the possibility of maybe some budget analysis through the lens of care next week. Yeah. So t- taking what we think is a really great idea of valuing care as a policy framework and and as we finished this idea that caring might be the compass that we need that, that helps us to choose the direction we go in as a society. And so, so let's see how it goes when it stacks up against the government's budget, which of course was released this week. 
As always, we will leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show notes on policyforum.net. And I do highly recommend if you get an opportunity to check out the report from Australia Remade, it's very much worthwhile reading and sharing and thinking about. Those three Cs remain tremendously interesting when we're considering the best policy approaches for Australia's future. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode and for the previous 249. Thank you to everyone who makes this pod happen for so many years, including everyone at the Crawford School, the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific, and of course, the ANU Studio. We'd love to hear from you about some of your favourite moments on the show. To join the conversation, you can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum, or via email, you can reach us at podcast at policyforum.net. You can also join the Facebook group. Just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. We will be back next week for the second episode in our Caring mini-series. So from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.